I just feel like saying amen and going home. You know, there was a portion we read this morning, and uh, I couldn't help but think as I listened to the choir portion that uh, Carl had read for the scripture, where it said, and I come to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And if I do say so this morning, I am rather weak. I don't feel quite as strong as I'd like to feel. So you will excuse me if I confine myself to behind the pulpit as much as I can. And uh, trust the Lord that the message that God gives to our hearts together will be a great blessing to you. Sometimes I overdo it. I haven't quite learned yet, you know. But uh, you keep praying. I'll, I'll get there one way or the other. I can't lose. I'm so glad I can't lose. Oh, I, I, you know, I'd miss all of you if the Lord took me. But uh, I'd know one thing. I'd see most of you in glory. And that would be the essential. But uh, there are just some times when that old heart of mine acts up, you know. So, as I preach to you this morning, I will try to confine myself and I'll keep away from a lot of things that I have. I have a, my problem is too much material. There's so many things that I want to say. But this morning, I'd like to confine myself, if I might, to Israel's disobedience and to the lessons which we must learn from that disobedience. And Israel was a very disobedient people. Uh, they were disobedient because they had disobedient parents continually. It started, of course, Abraham, the covenant of God with Abraham, associating him with the coming Jewish race, which was not yet in existence and did not come into existence until Jacob and the 12 tribes. The covenant that sealed his association with that race was a circumcision covenant. And that identified him immediately with all that was to follow. That was God's covenant, and that covenant was to be with Israel. Their fathers were very disobedient, beginning with Abraham. I think it is wonderful of God that he has shown us that his great saints are more disobedient in actual sin than most of us. May I repeat that? The great saints of God have been more disobedient than most of us. And the reason for this is that God must show 
to mankind so that they will understand the greatness of his grace. For if we had the patriarchs of old and the apostles, all perfect men, we would have to say then that they are an unusual group and we will never be able to emulate them. But there's only one perfect one and that one is Christ. And so all others are in the category of sinners. You, me, all of the patriarchs, all of the apostles. And by and large, deeper sinners than most all of us. Not all of us. Although I would assume that probably David's sin was deeper than anyone that is here this morning. The sin of both adultery and murder. Adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of the captain who was her husband, taking him out of David's way. And yet David confessed his sin to God, and God forgave him and said to him, Thou art a man after my own heart. Now this is encouraging, isn't it? It uh, defies your intellect. You can't quite fathom it, you see. It's very, very deep. It's God's great grace. Where sin abounded, what does Paul say? Grace did what? Much more abound so that you never will get that idea that you've gone beyond the limit and God can't do anything for you. And so Israel has a history of all of the fathers sinning very deeply. Stephen's recitation of Israel's history in the book of Acts in the seventh chapter ends with this exhortation. Listen to what he has to say. He looks at them, here are the Jews. He looks at the council and the high priest, and here's what he says. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. It's tough for a man to stand up there before the great council, the Sanhedrin and the high priest. He says, you're stiff-necked and you're uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears. And you always do resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. So their whole history, their background was one of disobedience. If I were to tell you, and this is where it's hard for me to pass by, the disobediences of these men, it amazes me. The disobedience, for instance, of Abraham, how twice, first before Pharaoh and then before Abimelech. He passes off his wife as his sister to preserve his own life because she was fair to look upon. And to save his own life, when they asked, who is this woman? He says, that's my sister, which could have involved her in deep impurity with the emperors, the rulers. 
in both cases, God preserved Sarah. And in the second case with Abimelech, after Abraham has done this very thing for the second time, the king looks at him, and that clever mind of his, Abraham's, says, Ah, you see how carefully he figures that. But she is my sister. For Abraham is my father, and Abraham is her father, but our mothers were not the same. So she is my sister. You see? Clever. But he wasn't so clever because Isaac, his son, seeing his father's evil way of passing off his own mother, Isaac's mother, as a sister to preserve Abraham's life, when Isaac marries Rebekah, she is not his sister. But he says to another Abimelech, when she looks so fair, she's my sister. So the son goes in outright lies, where the father thought he was telling white lies. And so the sin passed on to the son. And we can understand that sin continually passes on from one to the other. May I say this most carefully? It says the sins of the fathers are passed upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate him. And I want to tell you that the sins of the fathers do pass on in every facet of our lives. Our children are the ones that suffer through the sins of fathers and mothers. And I'll talk about that in a minute because I'm not talking about that which most people say is sin. I'm afraid that if I were to ask the average person what sin is, they would figure about three things. I haven't killed, I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't stole much. Someone says, I never steal anything, maybe a few packages of clips from the corporation, but they can afford it. How many times have you heard that, hmm? How many times have you been on a jury and the jury says, it's a big corporation, they can pay it, let them pay it. The sins of the fathers are visited under the third and fourth generations of them that fear him. Now I'd like to read just a portion, in, and, and Israel is in a peculiar position today, uh, and I have to step out from behind here because it's, uh, it's not easy for me to talk behind the pulpit all the time. I'll just hold up this a little closer. Uh, Israel's in a peculiar position today. You know that to Israel the prophecies were given. But Israel has forfeited all right to prophetic utterances. By default. 
Romans 9 to 11 tells you that Israel blindness has come to them and the veil that was before their eyes in Moses' day is still there and they see nothing. So by default, the prophecies are now the property of the only ones that can understand them. Who can understand the prophecies of God? Only those who are, what, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So all prophetic utterances given to Israel are completely the property of the church of God. Because no one can understand them except they have the Spirit of Christ. If any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And Christ means Messiah. So that the prophetic utterances belong only to the church, and the church is the only one that can discern them at the present time. Now, number two, I might say this. How can Israel understand the prophecies of God at all? since all they read in their temple is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible every year. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They get to the end of Deuteronomy, back to Genesis. How are they going to know what Isaiah says about the coming of the Messiah? How are they going to know what Micah has to say that the child should be born in Bethlehem? How are they going to know the great prophecies of Ezekiel concerning Russia? How are they going to know any of these things? They are not read. So all prophetic utterances have come to us. And how can they know anything? They never look at the book of Revelation, and this is the great prophetic book of Scripture. They know nothing of Jesus' discourses in Luke 17 and Matthew 24 and 25 on the coming of Jesus Christ. They know nothing of Paul and Jude and Peter's treatises on the coming of Jesus. The New Testament means nothing to them. So that to us and to us alone the great prophetic utterances have come so that we might be able to grasp what they have to say. So... I'm going to read to you this morning. I read last week a portion in Ezekiel that had to do with the scattering of Israel and why they were scattering. Let me just quickly read it to you and then I'll go to another portion to show you that if Israel was awake to these things, they could even find it in the Pentateuch, in the books they do read. In Ezekiel 36, uh, beginning at the 17th verse. Son of man... When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way, by their doings. And their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Now remember, uh, the Jew never, if you, I have talked to Jewish merchants, I've talked to the Jewish drugstore owner, I've talked to, well, when Mr. Ackerman was alive, I used to talk to him, I'd take this here, say, I never heard such things. He even asked me, are you sure that's in the Old Testament? Yeah, it's in the Old Testament. The scattering of Israel. 
They defiled the land by their own way. Wherefore I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they polluted it. And God is speaking. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings I judged them. And when they entered in unto the heathen whither they went, did it change them? No, they profaned my holy name when they said to them, so these are the people of the Lord that are come forth out of his land. Then he goes on to say, but I had pity upon them. That I'm not going to speak about his pity at the moment because for all of us, God has been very merciful. May I say this, that it's only by God's grace that you and I are here this morning. God had every reason to wipe out the whole thing from the first family. He had every reason to stop the whole thing with Adam and Eve when in the first family there was cold-blooded murder. It was upon the face of the earth when Cain killed Abel. And every reason not to proceed further with Noah at the flood because Noah certainly, though a righteous man, he believed in God Yet his life after the flood is a tragic thing. Unbelievable. I don't want to talk of the immoralities. Because they are so deep and vile that none of us have practiced them. Yet by God's grace he saved Noah and out of the line of Shem, Ham, Shem and Japheth, he brings forth Christ. The Redeemer, because God was determined that no matter how wicked man was, he was going to get a people for himself to dwell with him in eternity in that place he's prepared for them. This is the key. If I were to trace for you the lineage of Jesus Christ, it would sicken your heart. From Abraham's sin... To Isaac's sin, to Jacob's sin, with all the promises of God to Abraham about a child to come, he couldn't wait. With all the promises of I to Isaac, Isaac was a restless man, though a precious saint. With all the promises of God to Jacob, he has four wives, and any man with four wives has got troubles. But he had four wives and the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve children came from his four wives. He only loved one of them. He only loved Rachel. That's the one he wanted. But his uncle Laban deceived him, said, work seven years for her and I'll, I'll give her to you. And then when he worked the seven years, these clever people, aren't they? Huh? I don't want to talk about that cleverness. But after seven years of work, he had an older daughter, Leah, that wasn't getting married. And so he covered her face with a veil and gave it to Jacob, and Jacob married and took the veil up, and it's Leah. Now, this is the kind of a background we have. You see, I want to show that we're all the same. None of us are super righteous. There was wickedness down through the whole line. And we, when we get to Judah, which is the kingly line that leads down right to Jesus Christ. This is the line of kings, Judah. And you say, ah, that's the lineage of Christ. Certainly there'll be perfection from here on in, but uh, 
it doesn't last long. And Judah has two sons and there's no seed to him. And one of the sons dies and leaves Tamar behind and Tamar is his daughter-in-law. And Judah is walking through the streets and Tamar wants seed from the lineage just because she lost her husband. She doesn't know how. So she poses as a prostitute on the street and Judah goes into her and they have the child fairies. And F-P-H-A-R-E-S, lest we get mistaken there. P-H-A-R-E-S. And if you look in the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew and Luke, there is fairies. So if you thought you were going to get perfection in the lineage of Jesus Christ, you would be wrong. All God is doing is say, I want to show you that the line itself is wicked. But Christ is born of Mary, of the Holy Spirit of God, so that man is not involved. And that Holy One that came forth of Mary, you see, is the child of God, born of what? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because all you would have to do is to look at the lineage to know that it never could be out of such a lineage that anything good could come. It had to be of the Holy Spirit of God. So where you hear preachers who taboo the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Mary that Jesus might be born, you might remind them that then he came of a terrible line of sinners which is worse than most of us came from ourselves. So all of this disobedience is filled in with Israel. And you can see, as he says, I scattered them. Now, over in Deuteronomy, he also has something to say in the same line, which is in the first five books of the, of the Bible, which they do read year by year. I'll read it to you, and then I want to give you a few lessons for our own hearts of disobedience. In the 58th verse of the 28th chapter, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. Now may I say what he's saying here in the Hebrew is beyond imagination. The word wonderful we might misunderstand. Thy plagues beyond imagination, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance and sore sicknesses. Notice that. And of long continuance. Sixty-second verse. And ye shall be left few in number, whereas ye were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because thou wouldst not obey the voice of the Lord thy God. Sixty-fourth verse. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there, what? A trembling heart and a failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. And thy life, think of Israel now, I want you to think, I, I don't want to go, I have all of its history laid out here. 
of their sufferings down through emperor after emperor. Unbelievable things. In France, they had to pay the toll of a donkey for 400 years to cross a bridge. In England, they were cast out for 400 years. In Spain, they had the Torquemada, where the blood ran high down through the streets. Under emperor after emperor, they suffered terrible, terrible plight. And God had warned them there'd be great suffering. Your life will hang in the balance. And thou shalt fear day and night, and thou shalt have none assurance of thy life. And in the morning thou shalt say, Would to God it were evening. And at evening thou shalt say, Would to God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And so their disobedience was great, terrible, in every way. They worshipped gods of wood and stone. They worshipped gold. Abraham got rich wrongly. Isn't it terrible when you think of it? You know how he got rich, don't you? He got rich through the two kings that he passed off Sarah as his sister to. Both of them loaded him down to get rid of him. When it happened to Abimelech, you know what God did to the whole land? He shut the wombs up of every woman in the land and told Abimelech, if you touch Sarah, that will be it. You're through as a race. And so their wickedness was great, terrible wickedness, wooden stone, idols of gold, the golden calf, possessions. Even today, the Jewish heart, by and large, believes that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. God had said to them, you will control the money bags of the earth. But the lessons we should get should be so clear for us. And the lessons, where are we disobedient, beloved? In what ways are we disobedient? And may I say this very clearly, it isn't in the deep sins. And I'm afraid that's what we all feel sometimes. We've avoided adultery, we've avoided murder, and we've avoided stealing. Or have we? If I read the scriptures aright and I read in Malachi, wherein have we robbed God? And God turns around, he says, In that ye have withheld your tithes and your offerings from me, ye have robbed me. That's stealing. And stealing of the highest order. But we're liable to hold all things in reference to the highest of crimes and not to think of the little things that can plummet the heart into the depths of sin. I think it's the little sins, beloved. We shouldn't confine ourselves to the things that are heinous. But remember that the judgment seat of Christ is going to reveal every little sin. And may I quickly just warn you of the things that God is going to judge in you and in me. Not just you, but me also. Quickly now. Number one, this may seem like a very simple thing. In our lack of faithfulness to the house of God, 
in Hebrews, it tells us, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And this does not mean just a mere attendance to a Sunday morning service. This is telling us that we are to be faithful to the house of God in every way. What is God saying? My house is my home, and you are my children. Not only are you to be faithful in your attendance to the house of God, but you're to be faithful to me as part of the family of God. And when you do anything that dishonors me, you dishonor the church, and you dishonor yourself, and you dishonor the testimony of Jesus Christ, my blessed Son. There's to be a yearning and a desire to be in the house of God. I hope no one has come here this morning just because you should do it. God help you. This is not Christianity. It's Christ in you, your hope of glory. And you're here because you desire to have fellowship with a living God. Fellowship with him who loved you and gave himself for you. And so, beloved, number one, you will be judged by the word of God. And the word of God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Who are the some, Lord? The some are those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Once the power has come to be resident in your soul, beloved, in your body, once the Christ has come to dwell in there, he's to bring such a love for God that transcends all other loves of earth. It transcends the love that you have for your wife or your husband. It transcends the love that you have for your children. It transcends all other loves. For Jesus says, if any man love mother or father, or wife, or husband, or anyone more than he loveth me, he doth not know me. Once you have known Christ, your love for him transcends all the loves of earth. But as that love for him grows, that one that you love the most will find more love from you than they have ever known before because you are coming to experience what love really is. And you'll never know how to love your wife, and you'll never know how to love your husband, and you'll never know how to love your children until first your love for Christ as at a deep and intense and passionate glorious power. And once it's reached that point where you can say, Honey, I love you with all my heart as my wife or my husband, but I want you to know I love Jesus more. But because I love Jesus more, I've learned to love you more and more and more. Faithfulness to God. The red light's lit and I have nine more points. <laughs> In our lack of the exhibition of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 to any but to our favorites and to them infrequently, 
And I hate to tell you, but they seldom include the family. Sometimes our gracious attitude in an office and our gracious attitudes in business, because it's the money we put in our pockets, is much more blessed than our attitudes at home. So much so that I can remember one time when I had to deal with a Christian couple and I remember I said, you have such a wonderful husband. She said, what makes you say that? And I said, well, I happen to know the office he works in and they tell me he's a most wonderful man. She said, but you never met him at home. He's anything but wonderful in our home. He hardly ever speaks to us or to the children. But in the office, he was a gay, great guy. And so there is a facade of Christianity that we can put on and look so nice within the church and sometimes within the community and even to our neighbors. And yet when it comes right within the house and the home we live in where we let our hair down, the rest of the family knows what we really are and that's the only one. It's the ones right in the family. And I have said time and again, the measure of your Christianity is not here in the pew. You all look lovely and you all dress well on Sunday. The measure of your Christianity is what you are as a son and daughter or a mother and father in the home. That's the measure. That's where we really know the person. What they are there and no other place. The church will never know you. May I say this clearly? The church can never know you. Only God knows you and the second ones that know you best are the family. But only God really knows you for what you are. Because it says to us, no man knows the spirit of a man except the spirit of man. And no man knows the spirit of God except the spirit of God. So that we cannot know anything about a man his own spirit. The only one knows about him. And God's spirit the only thing knows about God. And so God gives us his spirit so we'll know about God and then having God placed in our heart through Christ, what is God? God is what? Love. And that love is manifested, beloved, in all of its power. Now, if a husband and wife here today don't have this kind of love, you're missing the mark. You've missed it, you've missed it, you've missed it. And the reason is you've never gotten really in love with Jesus Christ. Because if you've really found love in Jesus Christ to its epitome, you'd be so deeply in love and you'd overcome every single obstacle in your married life. And you'd put down every little thing that seems to annoy you and you'd cast it aside, remembering how much you have brought disrepute to God and you have been an abomination to God at many times and he never ceased to love you and love you and love you and love you. And you wouldn't let those little flaws in each one's nature bother you so much that it affects your home life and that wonderful joy that Christ wants for you. What does Jesus say? And I'm going to finish with this. Jesus says he wants you to partake of his joy. Why? So you can keep it to yourself? 
He says, Receive ye my joy. Why? That your joy might be full. And if your joy is full, it'll overflow. And the joy in your heart will be imparted to the others. You both meet and love. So wherein is our sin? Wherein is our failures? It's in the simple things. It's in allowing Christ to come into our lives, not to have a facade of Christianity, but to have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within our breast so that we won't be like Stephen said about Israel. He says, you do always resist who? The Holy Ghost. And you do always the things that what? Your fathers did. Well, when are we going to stop it? Shouldn't there be some point then? Say, well, all right, if my fathers did it, and their fathers did it, and their fathers did it, I don't want to do it. I want to be what Christ wants me to be. And beloved, you can have it. It can be your possession, but you can't have it unless, number one, you have Christ as your Savior and the Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell in you, the third person of the Trinity, and filled your hearts with love. So you can say with Paul, the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts toward others. Now, wife, husband, son and daughter, let me tell you something. We say a man's home is his palace. I want to tell you something. Most homes are hobbles when it comes to love. And God doesn't want it that way. God wants love in that home poured out in such volume from him that it fills our breasts. And oh, may he do it for you. May he do it for you. I don't believe there's any marriage that ever attains to all that God wants it to. Don't look at your marriage and say, but we're pretty perfect. No. Never get that. Paul says, I haven't yet apprehended. I haven't yet attained. He said, I've got a long way to go. A long way to go. So never get the idea that everything is perfect. God has a lot more in store for you. You haven't yet tasted. I think we've touched the hem of his garment, that's all. I think we have so much more to go. And God wants to pour out all of the glorious things to us. Israel was disobedient. Should we be disobedient? Israel didn't have the Holy Spirit to dwell in their breast. We have the Holy Spirit to dwell in our breast. I might say for Israel, they had some excuse. I cannot say for the church of Christ it has any excuse. Because God did something for us he never did for Israel. He says, I will give you my spirit and he will abide with you forever and ever and ever. And he is the very disseminator of every measure of God's grace that might live through us so that we might be built into the very stature and image of Jesus Christ. God wants a man, a woman, a boy, a girl to have the look of Jesus about them. Oh, that it would shine in us. The world outside is looking for shining Christians, looking for something to hold on to. A world that's in a maze not knowing where it's going. It's looking for you and for me not just me as the preacher. I would be a failure to never attach yourself to a man with his vertical to Christ and then it's horizontal to everybody else. But oh, let us get the measure of it. 
If I would ask all of us to be honest today and say, is your life the happiest and the most joyous it could possibly be? I know what your answer would be. It would have to be, no, it's not, Pastor. Well, I have a lot more to say about how we can make it that way, little by little by little, until we're filled, as Paul says, grace for grace. We want to partake of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Now, Father, we thank thee for thy blessed word, blessed to our hearts. And, Lord, we ask thee to touch us today. Fill us with thy Holy Spirit. May we, Lord, fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for our lack of love. We remember one of the great messages in Revelation to the church at Ephesus a church that was most blessed, that might remind me as a pastor much of Franklin Avenue. And yet I remember the Lord Jesus saying to that church, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Oh, Father, touch us. Help us to fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. Holy Spirit that dwells in us, urge us on to that life that we might be a testimony to our family first, to our neighbors second, to all that we meet third, that they may see the Christ in us. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.